babysitter and the fire. That's kind of what's going on in our passage today. So God had a chosen people in the, in the Old Testament, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And he sent, or he gave certain responsibility to certain people in there, the religious rulers. And he told those religious rulers, take care of my people. Lead them well, protect them, teach them. And he gave them that responsibility. But instead of doing that, instead of actually caring for the people that God gave them to take care of, they used it to give themselves more power and more comfort and actually led them, instead of to the rescuer, led them back into the fire, deeper into the flames. We're going to see that today. So like I said, Jesus had some really big enemies that we've been seeing in Matthew. Uh, a few weeks ago, we heard about the Sadducees. We've, we will see some more of these. Today, we're going to be talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, so two more different types of religious rulers. We're not going to spend a lot of time on who they are, but basically, these words, Pharisees, scribes, and religious rulers, we're going to use those all interchangeably this morning. So basically, these Jewish religious rulers, they've been Jesus' enemies since the very beginning of his ministry. They're jealous of his popularity, they're fearful of his influence, and they see that what he's doing is going to ruin all their control and their power. So they've been trying to trap Jesus. The past few months we've been looking at all these different ways that the religious rulers are trying to trap and entangle Jesus. And Jesus, seeing their evil hearts and their lack of any spiritual fruit, he has been confronting them, calling them to repent of their selfish leadership and their pride and to follow him. We read earlier in Matthew 21, Jesus uh, speaking to them, he said, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, taken away from these religious rulers and given to a people instead who are producing fruit, spiritual fruit, faith and obedience. He also said, speaking to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. So they said that they followed God. They said that they were the God-appointed people to lead Israel, to lead the Jewish people. But when this Messiah finally shows up, when God in flesh finally shows up in front of them, not only do they miss him completely, but they despise him, they reject him, and they plan his execution. So here's kind of the setup for today. I know a lot of you are visiting, or it's the summer, and people have been in and out throughout the summer. So let's set up today's passage. So the past three weeks, we've looked at three different big questions, three different traps that these religious rulers have come to Jesus. They've come to him, they've tried to trap him, they've tried to ridicule him, mock him, get him in trouble with the Romans who are uh, in charge, who can actually kill him, and getting him in trouble with the people so that they'll stop following him and, and discredit him. We saw that uh, earlier in Matthew, even in the middle of Matthew, so this was months and months ago, in Matthew 12 we read, but the Pharisees went out, so this is after Jesus embarrassed them after they tried to trap him. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So, so far, or in the past three weeks, we've seen in the last ditch effort, the religious rulers have pulled out all the stops 
and thought up their best three questions that they thought they could trap Jesus with. How they could ruin his credibility with people, how they could get him to say something that would get him executed by the Romans. Last week, uh, one of our elders, Jesse Splann, preached, and he, he described what's going on as a pack of predators surrounding their prey. And so I, I think I have a picture up there of a buffalo getting surrounded, or maybe that's coming up. Anyway, so think of, until you see the picture, think of a bunch of predators surrounding their prey. And the prey is not quite defeated yet. It's still trying to fight back. But, but the predators, one at a time, are jumping in and nipping and biting and trying to find a weakness. That's what's going on with these religious rulers. They're surrounding Jesus. They're, they're attacking him. They're trying to find a weak spot so that they can devour him. So the past three weeks, we looked at these three questions. The religious rulers have asked Jesus questions about taxes and the government, trying to get him in trouble with the government, with uh, the authority, the Roman authority. He, they're asking him questions about the resurrection and about marriage, and then last week about Old Testament law. And each time after Jesus bested them, after he answered their questions perfectly, they're astounded and unable to, to say anything else. And after those three questions, Jesus asked them back, let me ask you a question, he said, who is the Christ? So this word Christ also can be translated Messiah. It means a coming king. So God was promised that he'd send a king that would come rescue his people. In the story of Charlie and the fire, think of the firefighter. Okay, Think of me knowing that there's a fire and I sent a firefighter to come save him. It's kind of like that. So this Messiah is this rescuer, this savior that's going to come and save God's people. And so Jesus asks these religious rulers, you have most of the Old Testament memorized. You know all this. Your job is to just talk with each other and figure out this stuff. Who is this Christ? And they have some type of answer, but they completely miss who the Christ is and that the Christ is standing right in front of him. And these are the people that are supposed to know. These are the people that everyone else is looking to to find out who this Christ is going to be. Who should we put our faith and our trust in? And again and again, they denied Jesus' claim that he was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was this king, this prophet sent by God to rescue his people. And everything for them and for us hinges on this question, who is Jesus? And these religious rulers who are supposed to protect God's people, who are supposed to help God's people figure out who this Messiah is and when he would come, don't do it. And instead of pointing the people that they're leading to Jesus, instead they protect their power, their prestige, and their influence by waging war with Jesus. And now we're going to see today an entire chapter 39 verses of Jesus going off in a long rant against these rulers. Entitled today's sermon, Jesus Unloads on the Pharisees and Scribes. So we're going to look in today's passage. There's, it's kind of broken up into three parts. First part, Jesus warns the crowds and warns his disciples about these religious rulers. He's going to say, these Religious rulers, this is what they're doing. You should not follow them. This is how they're hurting you. Beware. And then he's going to turn his gaze and look at these religious rulers and condemn them for misleading God's people, for, for 
and for pulling God's people back into this burning house and running away from the firefighters that are there to save him. And then our passage ends with Jesus lamenting over what is going on. And we'll see Jesus' heart for people and how much he cares and how much compassion he has. All right, so let's start in our passage. At the very beginning, Jesus is going to warn the crowds and his disciples about these religious rulers. Starting in verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, which basically just means uh, Moses was a, a leader in the Old Testament, and so they're basically saying, these people have authority over you. These people are your leaders. Verse 3, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their flactories broad and their fringes long. So if you're listening right there, you probably went, huh? That's, there, there might be a few people who know what flactories are. Flactories were these uh, little like boxes and inside that have little pieces of paper with Bible verses on them. And so this, this is kind of how far and how extreme and even a bit ridiculous the religious rulers had gotten. So there's, there was like laws back in the Old Testament where God would say, keep my words on your mind, which basically, you know, memorize scripture, think about it. But instead, they took it, they took it so far to think, well, we're going to write out the Bible verses, and we're going to put it in a little box on our head so it's on our mind. And then these fringes are these long uh, little tassels or these long fringes at the end of, of their uh, clothing as well. And so in order to look more holy than other people, their flactories and their fringes would be very big and very long. So it would kind of be like this, the guy in high school that maybe you knew. Maybe you didn't. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was me. The guy in high school that only wore Christian t-shirts because he wanted to show everyone how, how great of a person he really was. Or the guy that had like seven WWJD bracelets, all the different colors, and wore them all at the same time. So kind of like that guy, that the only reason he does this is just to be seen and so that people will think, good of him. Obviously wearing things like that, not a bad thing, but it'd be like the person who did that just to look good in front of other people. So that's what's going on with the flactories and the fringes. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. For you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus just outlines to the crowd the, the religious ruler's failure to lead God's people. The Gospel Transformation Bible describes their, their failure in leadership really well. They write, the scribes and the Pharisees were positioned to do great damage to the Jewish people. They were learned in the scriptures and, because of their learning, occupied positions of authority and influence. Yet they were blind to their own hard-heartedness towards God. As a result, they were not only on the road to eternal destruction themselves, but they were leading others down the same road and leading astray those who were on the right road. Their central problem 
was the disjunction between their inner condition and their outward appearance. To other people, they appeared devoted to God and worthy of respect, but they were motivated in their outward acts of piety by love for the praise of others, pride, greed, and self-indulgence. So Jesus warns his people. He warns his disciples and the crowds, beware of these guys, beware of these religious rulers. And he gives four main reasons. He says, for they preach, but they don't practice. They preach, they tell you to do stuff from, from God's law, but they don't actually practice that. Verse 4, he says, they tie up heavy burdens. Not only do they tell you to do all the laws in the Old Testament, but they add a bunch of other laws. And they don't even lift a finger to help people with those burdens. Verse 5, he says, they do all their deeds not to help lead God's people into holiness and into relationship with him, but they do all their good deeds in order to be seen by others. They have big, fancy hats. They wear these great robes, Christian t-shirts, and lots of WWJD bracelets so that people look at them and think that they're great. And in verse 7, Jesus says, and they love the places of honor at feasts and at the synagogues and at the greeting, or in getting greetings at the marketplace. So just a little side note, because I know it's, it's uh, kind of strange, or people have asked this question a lot. So Jesus is actually not saying, you know, with these last couple of verses, never call anyone father. It's not sin to go home and uh, call your dad on the phone and say, hey there, Tim, can't call you father, because Jesus said not to. But he's really just saying, like, like the religious rulers were making people address them as father and rabbi in order to lord it over them, in order to get puffed up and prideful, he's telling his disciples, don't be like that. Don't be like that. All right, so something we're going to talk about real quick before we move on is just the high call of, of leadership and of teaching. We see Jesus have really, really, really strong words against the religious rulers. Because when he entrusts leadership and teaching to people over other people, it's a huge responsibility. So right now, I'm, I'm especially talking to the people in this room that are formal leaders, especially to the elders, to the deacons, people who lead community groups, or if you're a ministry leader. But pretty much all of us, to some point, are going to be leading and teaching someone, whether it's our children, whether in you know, children's ministry, whether we're sharing our faith with someone who doesn't know about Jesus. So this is appropriate for all of us, but especially for the leaders. I want us to listen to what the Bible has to say about the huge call of teaching and leadership. Hebrews 13, speaking to the church, the author writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them. And then he says, Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And so before God, leaders are going to have to give an account to how well they shepherded and protected and taught and took care of the people that God gave them. James 3.1 says, not many of you should become teachers, especially speaking of, of people who teach publicly the Bible. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So in all of these ways, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a leader, whether it's just teaching your kids at home or whether you're teaching a class or a community group or preaching. In all these ways, we're supposed to be looking to Jesus as the ultimate teacher, the ultimate leader, instead of Pharisees. So unlike these religious rulers, don't just preach. Model and live a gospel-centered, godly life. 
Unlike the religious rulers, when you teach and lead, be merciful, be kind, be patient. Remember how hard it was for you, and remember how patient and compassionate and generous God has been with you. Unlike the scribes and Pharisees, don't do your good deeds to be seen by others as if that was your way to earn God's favor. Do your good deeds in response to Jesus' love for you, not in order to earn his love or for the, the praise of other people. And a, wee, a real uh, quick, brief aside, since we're talking about leadership, I just wanted to remind us as a church that God has really, really blessed us with some fantastic leaders. Obviously, we're not perfect. We're not perfect as a church. Your leaders are not perfect as well. And we're always, as one of our goals as a church, we're always working on training and equipping uh, new leaders to use their spiritual gifts to build up and grow Hiawatha Church. But one thing I wanted to remind us, our, our lead pastor, Chris Walker, he's on sabbatical this summer. He's, he's been a fantastic lead pastor for us, and we need to thank God for him. For the next two months, him and his family will still be on sabbatical, and I would strongly encourage all of us to keep him and his family in prayer as they uh, Sabbath and rest, have great family time, as well as, as Chris preparing and praying and visioning for the future and what God would call us to. We also have a really great uh, overseers team, which is the elders and a ministry team composed mostly of deacons that truly, truly love and care for our church, that tirelessly give and lead and teach and serve and protect our church really well. So thank God, praise God, that we have a very healthy church and that we have very healthy leadership right now. All right, so back, back to our passage here. So like I said earlier, we've been in Matthew for over a year and a half. We've seen lots and lots of stuff of what Jesus has been doing, ways that he leads, ways that he teaches through humility and through, for, and through a great love for the people that he has been leading. His leadership is what we should be looking towards and following, which is in stark contrast to the scribes and the Pharisees. If you look, I have a little chart here. If you look and see, so the things on the left is what Jesus just announced about the scribes and the Pharisees. And you see they're in stark contrast. They're almost the exact opposite of the way that Jesus led his disciples. So the Pharisees, they were given authority, but Jesus, after he is resurrected from the grave, receives all power and authority. The scribes and Pharisees, they preach, but they don't practice, whereas Jesus both preached and he modeled. Pharisees and scribes give heavy burdens. They place heavy burdens on their people, yet don't help at all, whereas Jesus says that his burden is light, and he does all the work for us. The Pharisees and scribes, they do all their good deeds in public to be seen, whereas Jesus did many of his deeds in secret, and especially early in his ministry, even telling people not to share after he would heal or do a miracle. And the religious rulers, they loved the places of honor. They loved to exalt themselves. They loved to look good, whereas Jesus was dishonored. He, was hum he humbled himself, and then later the Father exalted him. All right, so now Jesus gets done warning and addressing his followers in the crowd, and he now turns his gaze to his enemies. So not only were these religious rulers, not only were they abusing their leadership, but they were keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven. They were hypocrites who didn't practice what they preached, 
And they cared more about what they looked like publicly than true heart change in relationship with God. These woes that Jesus pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees, they're a mix of both condemnation as well as regret and sorrow. That's what the word woe means here. And we can even see Jesus is going to do maybe some of the harshest words in all of Scripture that he says. We're going to see even in these really harsh, pointed words, we can still see that he has a broken heart for these people. So there's seven woes here. The first woe, verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So these guys, these religious rulers, they were the ones that God gave the figurative keys to. But instead of using those keys to help people in, to to rescue people, they instead slammed the door in their people's faces and locked them. They failed to recognize the Messiah, this one who is coming to rescue them and usher in this new kingdom. And because of that, they essentially were slamming and locking the door in their people's faces. It would just be like this babysitter when seeing the firemen come to rescue them, turn the gaze of Charlie away from the door, locking the door and shutting it, keeping the rescuer out. The second woe, verse 15, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. er, proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. So Jesus is even arguing against them, trying to convert people into the, the, the Jewish religion, saying, what you're really doing is you're convincing people not to come to God and to repent and to believe, but instead you're actually converting them into your prideful, hypocritical, arrogant ways, and you're making them twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You're actually bringing them into a worse state. They're worse off after following you. Jesus says, third woe, he says, verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple... It is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by that oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes this gift sacred? For whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So Jesus is arguing against their rules of which oaths really count and which oaths don't. They're arguing about which or where where these loopholes are. They're arguing if I cross my fingers and put it behind my back, it's not really wrong, right? Because... I cross my fingers. Jesus' fourth woe. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus' seven woes make a nice little structure. 
that, that point to this fourth one, this fourth woe kind of being the summary or, or, or the main woe that summarizes the Pharisees' failure to lead God's people in their great hypocrisy. So in the Old Testament, there was a law which required God's people to give a portion, a tenth of what uh, of their money to the priests and to the temple to continue that work. So these guys, they were so focused on following this law that they took out their spice cabinets and they measured out one-tenth of these tiny, tiny, tiny little flakes. They tied their smallest crop, yet they still missed the coming rescuer, the coming Messiah. And Jesus doesn't even say what they did was wrong, but only that they're completely, completely missing the point. This very small lesser law, they're getting it right, but they're completely missing the bigger point, the weightier matters of justice, mercy, and leading with faithfulness. It would be as if someone was walking down the street, finds a dime, and as soon as they pick it up, they run home, they log onto their computer, and they give a one-cent donation to the church. And then they say, look at me. Look how great I follow the law. God's really happy with me. God's really proud of me. He, he owes me something now because I followed his law. That down to a cent, just like that. And then to make Jesus' point even more, he begins to mock them. Mocking how they are focusing on the insignificant while missing the main point. So another one of the laws is that they couldn't eat food that was unclean. So things like insects were unclean, as well as large things like camels. And Jesus mocks them and says, you work so hard to strain your wine to make sure no little insects or little gnats get in there. But while doing that, you're actually swallowing a camel. You're swallowing the biggest unclean animal that they knew of. Jesus' fifth woe, he, he, he continues. Verse 25, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So Jesus continues to expose their hypocrisy for, the, for them appearing good and holy and godly. But when you look on the inside, you see that they're filthy and dirty, disgusting, they're full of greed and full of self-righteousness on the inside. They've spent all their time and energy focusing on the outside, on the appearance of godliness, while on the inside, they are filthy. Jesus says, 6, well, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So because if someone touched a, a tomb ceremonially, they were unclean. What they do often is they would whitewash these tombs so that they would stand out so people would know. So right now we're around a, a celebration that they have called Passover. And so lots of people are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So especially around that time, they're going to whitewash these tombs so, so that people don't walk into Jerusalem, step on a tomb on accident, and then become unclean and can't celebrate Passover as all. And sometimes people would even decorate these tombs with flowers, much like people do at grave sites now, and they would actually look quite beautiful on the outside. So Jesus uses this common picture that people see all the time, and especially 
right at that time, because it was around Passover, he uses this to describe the Pharisees and the scribes. They might look great on the outside. They might look clean and beautiful and attractive, but inside is quite different. The scribes and Pharisees, just like those tombs, are filled with rotting corpses, full of death and decay. Jesus' seventh and final woe, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So Jesus ends with his final woe, a big stamp on their, their hypocrisy. So they said, these religious rulers said, okay, we know our fathers didn't listen to the people that God sent us. We know that God sent us prophets and spoke words directly from him, but they didn't like it, so they murdered and they killed and they persecuted God's prophets in the past. But if we were our parents, if we were our fathers living back then, we wouldn't have done that. We would have listened to God. And the irony is that that's exactly what's happening now. Jesus is God's ultimate prophet sent to humanity to tell them a message from God. Not only, not only are they missing him, the ultimate prophet, but they're scheming, just like their ancestors, to murder him. Jesus even goes on to say, that they will continue to persecute and murder those sent by God after him. And this played out throughout early church history where all of Jesus' disciples, all 12 of them, were persecuted and all but one was murdered and martyred. And for the next few centuries, Jesus' disciples would be persecuted and murdered, just like Jesus said they would and just like he was. All right, so Jesus has given lots and lots of words to denouncing the religious rulers here. And all of Jesus' woes can be sum, sum, summarized in a fail to lead well through hypocrisy. So hypocrisy, just the definition of it is behavior that does not agree with what someone, uh, with what someone claims to believe. So someone practicing, not practicing what they preach or doing something they say that they are against. And these religious leaders, they're two-faced. They were wearing a mask. On the outside, they appeared to be godly and loving and good. But on the inside, they had impure motives, evil hearts. Bible commentator D.A. Carson writes about this. He says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees are hypocrites since they claim to teach God's way but refuse to enter the kingdom and hinder those who try to do so. They do not enter the kingdom because they refuse to recognize who Jesus is. That's why they don't enter the kingdom. The sheep of Israel are lost 
because their shepherds have led them astray. Here at Hiawatha Church, we have, we have 13 values that uh, we value a lot. Things like glorifying God, gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible, hospitality, and so on. And one of those, value number 11, is authenticity. Maybe the opposite or the remedy of hypocrisy. Uh, this is how we describe it here. True community and true spiritual growth can only exist in an environment where people can be real with God and with one another. We value sharing our struggles. Listen to that. We value. We don't just do it. We don't just put up when people share their struggles with, with each other. We value sharing our struggles, praying for each other, and where appropriate, confessing our sins to each other. And again, we're not perfect. We're not a perfect church. We're a church full of people who are sinners. We know that. But this is what we strive for. We strive for this type of authenticity. We try to create a culture like that here at Hiawatha where people don't have to put on masks, where people can come on a Sunday morning or to community group or to gather with their friends and be real about the crap that's going on in their life, the sin that they're struggling with or just how, life, how hard life is. And the spoken word that Tyler said earlier describes this real well. Because if grace is water then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people. It's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure. I don't have to hide my sin because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on him. The gospel says that we're all equal before the cross. Those who are more mature and who are farther along in their faith, they realize that they've been given that and gifted that and that God is the author of, of their good works and their maturity, so they have nothing to boast about and can't look down at other people. And those who are maybe younger in their faith or are struggling with certain sin in their lives, they know that their standing before God is not dependent on whether or not they have victory over that sin in that day or whether or not they have perfect faith, but their relationship with God is dependent on what Jesus has done on their behalf. There's no competition here, and we can be authentic with each other because of that. Our salvation and even our maturity, even our good works, our gifts, they're given to us. They're authored by God so that we can't boast about them. We don't have to put on a face when we come and gather on a Sunday morning. We value transparency, authenticity, and just people being real with each other. One really big way that we see this practically play out all the time here at Hiawatha is through prayer. So whether we're sharing prayer requests on the table, online, with groups, or with the whole church, or whether we're gathering to pray here uh, for communion on a Sunday morning, or with our friends, with our community group, with our families, we realize through prayer, we don't have to look perfect. We don't have to say perfect words. We don't have to sound smart or intellectual. And it is okay. Listen to this. It is okay if we are hurting, if we are imperfect, if we're struggling with sin, or if we have doubt. Now, we don't want to stay there. We're not going to sit and wallow in that and be okay with staying there forever, but it is okay. We don't want to stay there, and so we work together to find victory over sin and praying for our faith to grow and to see each other mature and grow in our faith. But seeing imperfect people should not surprise us. Whether it's here on a Sunday morning, whether it's in your community group, in your family, or whether you run into to other Christian friends, seeing imperfect people shouldn't 
surprise us, shouldn't scare us away. In fact, if we're never seeing imperfect people, there's something wrong. We should be scared that us as a church are, mi- are missing our mission. We are a church full of sinners, and we won't try to, but we are going to let you down. We're not perfect. We are going to let you down. We're going to disappoint you at times, and people will get hurt if you stick around long enough. Not because we want to, but because people are being real with each other, and because we don't have to be perfect in order to come to the cross. You don't have to be perfect to receive salvation or to become a part of Hiawatha Church. But unlike the scribes and Pharisees in today's passage, there is forgiveness and grace here because we've all received this greatest grace and forgiveness through Jesus' death and resurrection. So the third part of today's passage, Jesus ends his denouncing of the religious rulers and he just looks at Jerusalem, which is symbolic for God and his relationship and his promise to his people. He looks at it and he just laments over it. So we see the heart of Jesus, a broken heart. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We see Jesus' great compassion and love yet again, even after some of the harshest words he's ever spoke. He's full of sorrow, and he sees this coming destruction of Jerusalem, the city that symbolizes God's promise to his people. It symbolizes his relationship, his covenant with them. And after years and years and years of Jesus' teaching and miracles, his preaching and his healings, despite all these explicit warnings to repent and to believe, the majority of the people did not abandon their religion, did not abandon their legalism, did not abandon their rules, their self-righteousness. They did not abandon that and follow Jesus. So our word today, Hiawatha Church, and if you're a visitor here this morning, don't be like so many of these Jews who hung and clung so tightly to their works, to the good things that they did, to their hard work, to their self-righteousness, and at the same time completely missed Jesus and his free gift of salvation. Don't be like the child that is so mesmerized by the fire and the flames and the light that he doesn't turn to the rescuer who's there to save him. So despite this being a very downer passage, a very downer sermon, we're going to end with, but there's still hope. Despite 39 verses of Jesus going off and unloading on these religious rulers, there's still hope. We are not without hope. These three people, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and the Apostle Paul, all three of them were were religious rulers. All three of them were people in this camp that Jesus is rebuking. And at some time, they chose to give up on their own self-righteousness, their own religion, their own rules that they had made, and instead they repented and believed and followed Jesus, including the Apostle Paul there at the end who wrote most of the New Testament. So even though Jesus gives maybe his strongest warnings in Matthew here to the religious rulers, 
he reminds us that there's still hope, that no one is beyond redemption. Even people like this, even these people that he yells at for verses and verses and verses, even this guy at the end, the Apostle Paul, who actually was a, was a murderer of people in the early church. Hiawatha, with religion, there's no hope. So stop trying to earn God's favor and God's love. We're going to end with apart from the spoken word from earlier. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man. Which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but on Jesus's alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserved. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb. Which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus says, it is finished, I believe he meant it. Let's pray.